In the Soviet Union, all media were controlled by the state and foreign correspondents were severely restricted. Those of us who hoped and perhaps believed that freedom of speech and freedom of the press would be guaranteed to the people of post-Soviet Russia have been disappointed. Not least, the Kremlin has been hostile towards journalists reporting for Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, RFERL, media outlets of the U.S. government. To discuss what President Vladimir Putin is doing and intends to do to further control reporting from Russia, we're joined by Jamie Fly, President and CEO of RFERL. Jamie has previously worked at the German Marshall Fund and served as a senior staffer in the U.S. Congress, the National Security Council, and the Defense Department. Also with us is Andre Shari, the director of RFERL's Russian service. I'm Cliff May, and it's my pleasure to have you with us too for this conversation here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Jamie, it's good to, to talk to you again. Andre, nice to virtually meet you. Um, you know, we, we should provide a bit of background for those who may not know a lot about RFERL. So, Jamie, start with how these two organizations began and, and what their mission is. Thanks, Cliff. It's great to, great to be with you and great to be on, on your uh, podcast with Andre. So Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty uh, is now uh, a combined entity of what were originally two radio stations that started during the Cold War with the mission of uh, broadcasting objective news and information to people behind the Iron Curtain. Radio for Europe broadcast to uh, the, the Warsaw Pact countries in Eastern Europe, Radio Liberty broadcast to the Soviet Union. Uh, and now, today, uh, in the 21st century, RFERL is a multimedia news organization, very similar to many private news organizations, but uh, it's different in the sense that it's an international public broadcaster funded by the U.S. Congress with the mission of providing independent news and information in societies where it otherwise is difficult for citizens to get. These are societies where freedom of the press does not exist or has not been fully established, and the media are often uh, under direct pressure from the governments in question. Uh, and so RFERL tries to provide that news and information that otherwise uh, those citizens would not be able to get in their societies. And we do that in 23 countries and 27 languages uh, currently, in, including uh, still in Russia. And maybe just so people know, the, the difference, people have heard of Voice of America. It's probably more famous than RFERL. What's the, what is the distinction between the missions of Voice of America and RFERL? 
Uh, RFERL does what we call surrogate journalism. Uh, so we are trying to help model the work of an independent press in the societies where we operate. Our journalists are often, and as much as possible, also forward deployed. So out in the countries that they're reporting on side by side with the audience that they are serving. Um, Voice of America does uh, some of that, but Voice of America throughout its existence uh, as a federal U.S. government news network has had uh, the additional role of telling America's story, describing what's going on in the United States and uh, outlining U.S. policy to the world. Uh, and so it's one of our sister networks, but there's a, a fundamental difference in our approach and uh, the, the service that we provide to our audiences. Got it. And Andre, what, how, would you, how would you characterize the situation for Russian media, for, for uh, you know, in, inside the country, newspaper, TV, radio, internet, and uh, social media? Are there any independent outlets anymore? For example, as I recall, Niza Visamaya Gazeta, which translates as independent uh, newspaper, was an important and, and fairly independent newspaper in the early post-Soviet period. And I know there's, I don't know a lot about it, there's Doj, which means rain, and it has, which is an independent Russian online TV channel. So are there still, in, is there still such thing as independent media in Russia? Hello, everybody. Hello, Cliff. Hello, uh, uh, hello, Jamie. Uh, it depends on what is the line of your comparisons. If you compare it with the Soviet Union, it's still better than it used to be. And I remember myself as a young listener of Radio Svoboda, Radio Liberty. It was 40 years ago, and I was sitting in my room and trying through the jamming of radio to understand what was going on in Moscow during Olympic Games of 1980, yes, which were... Uh, which were blocked by U.S. due to Russian-Soviet uh, invasion to Afghanistan. If you compare with that time, of course, uh, Russia is not Soviet Union or still is not as uh, Soviet Union used to be. But from the other point of view, for example, Nizavisima Gazeta or independent newspaper is not independent anymore because it's, it's heavily dependent from Kremlin. There are a bunch of um, in, uh, independent or semi-independent media outlets still in Russia. And I think that uh, Radio Svoboda leads this bunch of, of journalist, journalistic team who try teams who try to uh, provide to the audience uh, balanced and um, balanced and transcendent news. Uh, you mentioned TV Rain, it's okay. You can mention also Echo Moskva, uh, once a very, uh, very famous radio station which uh, emerged during Yeltsin's time, Boris Yeltsin's time. It's not so independent anymore because it's somehow connected with Gazprom or other uh, oligarch circles close to Vladimir Putin. But there are only several, several, several media outlets. Some of them are based outside Russia, like, for example, Meduza.io. It's an independent uh, website which is based in Latvia. Um, you can name several web websites. You can name several Telegram channels. But there, uh, there, space for freedom press for for free press is unfortunately smaller and smaller in Russia during uh, during the last decade of Vladimir Putin governance. And you can cite a lot of a whole set of uh, legislation which prevents journalists of doing their job professionally and being independent. 
uh, of course, we are we, we are hoping for the better, but uh, frankly speaking, we are under tremendous pressure from Russian government, and uh, our future in Russia is not very clear now. Yeah, and we're going to we're going we're to get to that and talk about specifically what's happening to RFERL under the Putin government. But uh, we'll get to them, and I want to do a little back do a little more in background. Also, I want to introduce a this kind of personal note. You know, I was I was an undergrad exchange student many years ago in the Soviet Union. And then I visited uh, Russia again in the early post-Soviet period for a meeting between American and Russian journalists. I was a full-time journalist myself at that point. And I can remember long discussions about how to establish freedom of the press in Russia. And people were very excited about this conversation and about the possibilities. Everyone I'd say was, was very hopeful. And eventually what was produced was Article 29 of the Russian Constitution. That was adopted in 1993, two years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And it's just five sentences. And I think it's interesting to hear what, what's in the Constitution, whether or not it's the, it, these rights are guaranteed. What, the, what Article 29 says is everyone shall be guaranteed the freedom of ideas and speech. It sounds awful good. Two, the propaganda or agitation instigating social, racial, national, or religious hatred and strife shall not be allowed. The propaganda of social, racial, national, religious, or linguist supremacy shall be banned. Hmm. Could be open to interpretation. No one may be forced to express his views and convictions or to reject them. Everyone shall have the right to freely look for, receive, transmit, produce, and distribute information by any legal way. The list of data comprising state secrets shall be determined by a federal law. Finally, the freedom of mass communication shall be guaranteed. Censorship shall be banned. I think it's fair to say that Putin, who came to power seven years later in 2000, clearly did not consider any of that binding on him. <laughs> Jamie, maybe you stop it. Andre will have have something to say about that, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> that's correct. And I think in, in our case, uh, and Radio Svoboda, Radio Liberty's experience in uh, post-91 Russia, we've seen that trajectory that you outlined. Uh, we obviously operated even in a minimal level, at a minimal level prior to 1991. Uh, I'm told that we, even at one point in the late Gorbachev era, had 100 freelancers working with us, even though we didn't have an official presence inside the Soviet Union at that point. Uh, fast forward to Yeltsin, uh, was the Russian president who actually invited uh, Svoboda to set up an office in Moscow, actually 30 years ago this year, uh, was someone who had been interviewed by our team before we had that official presence. Uh, he even, when he invited us in, said that he, his quote was, I have not been allergic to you for a long time. I don't feel mistrust towards your radio station. I always respond to your request to be interviewed. And actually, he spoke very favorably about our work, invited us to set up this office 30 years ago. And then to be blunt, ever since, it's kind of been down uh, downhill from there uh, in terms of the restrictions that have been imposed on us. Putin repealed the decree that invited us in. And in the last several years, we've started to see a steady increase into direct pressure on our ability to operate inside the country, which Andre was referencing earlier. 
And Andre, if I'm correct on this, since Putin came to power, at least 25 Russian Russian journalists, not RFRL, but Russian journalists, have died or been murdered or or in mis in mysterious circumstances. Is that is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. If it's correct, maybe maybe even more. Uh, the paradox is that in today's Russia, this constitution you cited, uh, you you have been cited, still exists. And precisely we cite this constitution now when we defend our position in Russian courts, who uh, who finds us for doing our professional job in Russia. So so the same, the new legislation uh, enables us to 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 control our 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 content hundred percent. That's why we're appealing to the courts against fines which are imposed by the Russian governments. So uh, it's more and more difficult for journalists to be independent in in today's Russia. We can cite examples from 90s where uh, Radio Svoboda was on one peak of its popularity. Now it's another because our popularity during the last uh, 24 months has had duplicated. So it does mean that Russian audiences need our information and they perceive it to be a truthful, to be balanced and to be important for them. It does mean that uh, Russian state sponsored propaganda does not provide 100% uh, 100% honest and balanced news so at the same time so we feel this pressure on databases from government bodies on us and our journalists were more than once jeopardized by russian police by security forces and for each journalist who now operates in russia not only in Moscow, but outside Moscow and remote regions. It's more and more physically dangerous to, 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 to produce uh, quality, quality, quality reporting from, 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 uh, from the field because the legislation is so rigid that it bans a lot of things which for normal journalists is absolutely like, like air, like fresh air. You should just do it just to, to be able to produce, uh, to produce quality reporting. So, Jamie, be a little specific now. How many journalists do you have still managing to work there? What's the situation in terms of getting visas? What's their work conditions? Are they being threatened? And what else is uh, in larger uh, is Putin doing to try to prevent RFERL from from working? Are they trying to actually are they trying to actually push you out of the country entirely? Hopefully, that you just make it so inconvenient that you just give up. Yeah, so we have a, a sizable presence uh, in Russia, and it's important to mention, as you mentioned, visas that uh, RFRL employs uh, Russian nationals in Russia for the most part. Um, so these are Russian citizens who are reporting of uh, on issues of interest to their uh, country, and so these are not Westerners who uh, are being sent in to cover what's going on in in Russia. Uh, but many of these are people who many of them have never lived or worked outside of their country, um, and, and they now work for RFERL uh, and do their journalistic work uh, in Moscow or elsewhere. We've uh, got about 50 people in, in Moscow, and we have several hundred freelancers that we work with across Russia. And Andre mentioned the pressure, the unique pressures that they are often under. Uh, especially in smaller uh, towns and villages and more remote areas where they sometimes it's easier for them to be harassed by local security forces. Um, so it's an extensive network. We believe one of the, if not the largest independent news uh, network of journalists inside Russia. 
and so we believe that they're doing essential work for a Russian public, which is increasingly uh, facing a dwindling number of choices when it comes to the media landscape that they have access to. Uh, and what we've seen in recent years, uh, as the Kremlin's own insecurities have grown, are efforts to target us by uh, citing the fact that we are funded by the U.S. Congress, designating us as foreign agent media, and imposing a set of requirements on foreign agent media trying to operate inside Russia. Those requirements initially just were administrative and bureaucratic, requiring certain types of registration inside the country, uh, some high-level labeling of us and our content as foreign agent. But that all took a very different turn starting last fall in the wake of protests in Belarus, in the wake of ongoing unrest inside Russia, when uh, the Kremlin imposed uh, invasive labeling requirements on foreign agent media, most notably RFE, RL. Uh, and we as a company have refused to comply with that invasive labeling, including things like 15 second trailers prior to every social media video, because we believe that it essentially puts the Kremlin into our newsroom and is providing the Kremlin with the opportunity to make editorial decisions about how to display our content to the Russian audience, which we find unacceptable. And because we're refusing to comply, as Andre noted, we are now being fined currently to the tune of uh, $1.5 million. And those fines are growing uh, sometimes on a weekly basis because every single time we publish a new piece of content without those required labels, we are again violating the law. So you're challenging these fines, as I understand it, in, in, in court. You are able to find attorneys in Russia uh, who are independent enough to represent you and try to say the law does not establish that you can do this to a foreign company? So we are, uh, we are appealing at all levels possible. We've begun to lose those appeals in the Russian judicial system, but we are appealing to higher levels. Uh, ultimately, we plan to appeal to the European Court of Human Rights as well, because as Andre noted, uh, we believe that these requirements actually violate the Russian constitution uh, itself. And so uh, we plan to pursue all legal avenues possible. And yes, we have lawyers who have been working with us, um, but we're entering a phase here in the, the next several months where we could face potential criminal uh, violations uh, for our failure to comply, uh, where some of our Russian uh, staff could be targeted for criminal prosecution, uh, and when they could even try to force us out of the country by closing our bank accounts and even raiding our office in Moscow and seizing equipment. And so we're reaching a critical phase in this confrontation uh, with the Kremlin, uh, which, as far as we can tell, appears at this point uh, to have the intent of forcing us out of the, the country and making it impossible for us to do uh, our day-to-day -day journalism from the ground inside Russia. One thing I, 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 I wonder about, Andrea, so it's great to have Russian reporters on the ground in Russia reporting for this service. Uh, somebody who lives in Umsk knows Umsk well, knows what's going on there, but it's also pretty easy for the authorities to say to that person, you know, 
you and grandma and your and and and, and your friends, um, you're putting yourself in, in a lot of jeopardy with what you're saying. Let me tell you what the truth is that you should be reporting, and we'll be watching to see if you do, and there will be consequences if you don't. Doesn't that? I would gotta imagine that happens. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and I'd like to pin uh, to pin on uh, what uh, you asked Jamie before. What is the key difference between us and Voice of America? We do have, and we always used to have, very heavy presence in 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 Russia in every major city. We have a family of websites which are devoted especially to certain regions of Russia, Siberia, Northwest, Northern Caucasus. Uh, Volga region. So it's very close to people. And these websites does not tell the story of Putin. They do tell the story of uh, common people who lives on the ground, who understand what's going on with their daily burdens, daily problems. And our reporters are just inside this, this, this Russian people. That's why we are not foreign agents in essence. We are Russian people doing our professional job. We are thankful for, and I am Russian national also, we are thankful for to U.S. people and to US taxpayers who help us to do our job because it's the interests of um, democracy in Russia. And we are independent because our, our editorial policy is, is defended by US law. We do take all editorial decisions independently and we do not know what is blacklist like in Kremlin when you can't talk about it or you can't interview certain uh, certain person because it's not up to what they want to hear from uh, from this person. Uh, so um, and uh, of course, all journalists who are a lot of journalists who are uh, who are situated in the ground in, in small cities, they are. Um, uh, subjects of daily or weekly attacks from from security service, from local authorities. Uh, they are blamed as foreign agents or U.S. spies by uh, pro-Kremlin media. Uh, we somehow are acquainted to to it, and it's just a, a way of of doing things in Russia. So, and I'm proud that I'm one of these bunch of brave journalists who are uh, whom I do not know personally every one of them, because there are hundreds of them, but they go on with doing their job, which is essential for Russia. Are you reaching most of your audience by uh, on the internet or social media or shortwave radio? How are most people accessing RFERL at this point? I presume that our first platform and by far most popular is internet. We have a family of websites and not only we as a Russian service, because we have during the last years, we have very strong uh, TV channel, which is called Quarantine, Настоящее Время in Russian, who is one of our, it's our colleagues who works together with us in, in Moscow, in Prague and other cities, and uh, they provide more digital journalism that we do. We are, we are uh, traditionally strong with analytics, with text, with social videos. Uh, with radio, we are still radios with 724 broadcasting. Uh, we have 724 broadcasting through internet. We have several hours of AM broadcasting from uh, from frequencies in Lithuania. But nevertheless, um, social social media and internet are our our main uh, main platforms. And by the way, they are one of the uh, one of the current. Um, current targets uh, by the Russian government because this legislation about how and what you can put on the internet and what you cannot is much and much rigid, more and more rigid in Russia than it used to be a, a couple of years ago. Jamie, how complicated would it be and for the for the government to block you 
and others on the internet to take more control of the internet like I believe the Chinese have. Technologically, isn't that a capability and aren't you concerned that they will use it? Why haven't they used it? Yeah, it is a, it's a constant concern. The Kremlin has been very vocal about their desire to have some sort of system similar to the Chinese and they've talked about a Russian internet that uh, would be indigenous and would be, allow them to block access to Western platforms and Western content. We haven't seen them deploy that on a wide scale yet. They've said at various times that they're testing such a system. Um, and that would be concerning, obviously, to us, because as Andre noted, in recent years, most of our audience is interacting with our content online. And the, we've had significant growth uh, through those online platforms. Uh, our audience inside Russia has almost doubled over the last five years. When you add up all of the people who are coming to the local regional sites that Andre talked about, the young Russians who are interacting with our social media content, our live protest coverage, our coverage of live events like Navalny's return to Russia, uh, that is where people are coming to access news and information, not just from us, but from other sources as well. And I think, as Andre noted, it's it, that we're just part of one of the, the bigger picture because the Kremlin is not just aiming at us. They've also talked about blocking entire Western social media platforms. They've uh, tried to pick fights with Twitter and they've made threatening noises about YouTube, which is incredibly popular inside Russia. And so I think um, everyone who's producing content for the Russian audience needs to be concerned. We'll, if we face that challenge, we'll be able to come up with ways to circumvent. Uh, we have to deal with this in other countries like Iran uh, or some places in Central Asia where our sites are blocked by authoritarian regimes. There are technological ways that you can provide workarounds for your audience. Um, and audiences usually adapt. If they really want to access the content, they will find ways to use VPNs or other means of accessing sites that are blocked. Um, but it is a concerning development writ large because it uh, appears that the Kremlin, because of its insecurity, is trying to close the information space generally uh, and to further narrow the choices that are available to the Russian people. And Andre, we were just talking about Russian journalists being intimidated, threatened, but uh, I, I don't tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think some have actually been detained uh, in, in, uh, under difficult circumstances, uh, beaten. Have some RFE, uh, RL journalists even been killed? Uh, I don't think that we have uh, Russian Russians in the Russian service such kind of events. We, we, we collaborated with a couple of journalists who were unfortunately killed in the, in in in. in uh, in 90s, when it was a, an era of, of this wild capitalism in Russia, but not during the last days, uh, the, the last years. But nevertheless, the situation continues to be very alarming, and uh, and uh, the pressure is, uh, is is rising up. And uh, yes, our journalists are some of them are under direct physical threat from the from the authorities. Uh, some of them are contacted by service, secret services and officers ask them why do you, why on earth uh, 
you collaborate with Americans and so on and so forth. So it's 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 a common thing for uh, especially for Russian regions, uh, Russian regions in in Russia in in Moscow and Saint Pete situation could be a little bit better. But nevertheless, the sailing is now down and down from from year to year, and uh, we can expect that. Possibilities with this shaken political situation and deteriorating image of Russia in the outer world, our our job will be even more tighter than it used to be. Jimmy, there are Russian journalists in Washington and other probably other places in the U.S. representing TASS, maybe as Vestia, Pravda. These are all government-controlled media outlets. I, I'm, I'm guessing you've discussed with people in the State Department, maybe the administration, uh, the possibility that, okay, we can make this reciprocal. If, uh, if they're going to restrict uh, American journalists, we can restrict Russian journalists. Um, we know the Russian journalists in the United States are not independent. So let's, uh, let's talk about reciprocity. Yeah, that's, that's an issue that's often raised, certainly when I meet with members of Congress, uh, and it's come up in, in recent congressional hearings. Um, it's a challenging issue because, uh, you know, the Russians obviously don't believe us when we say this, but RFERL is actually editorially independent of the U.S. government, despite the fact that we're funded by the U.S. Congress. As Andre noted, that independence is enshrined in U.S. law. No one has any doubts about uh, RT and Sputnik and who they take their orders from. Uh, and so the direct comparison is flawed from that sense uh, in that you know, RFRL is out there trying to do independent journalism where RT and Sputnik are propaganda outlets uh, who are trying to- Although RT used to be called Russia Today, just so yes. people know, because it's, 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 I think it's still available on, on, on cable TV and all of that. And Yeah, yeah so they, they take- their direction from the Kremlin, uh, both Russia Today and Sputnik. Uh, and the challenge as well is uh, they've uh, been able to access uh, Americans through pretty much every platform imaginable. Um, they're on any cable package you may get or satellite package in the United States. Uh, they even have some radio licenses with local radio stations in the Midwest and elsewhere. Uh, whereas as the Kremlin has increased its pressure on US-funded media in recent years, all of that has been deprived of RFERL. Uh, we lost our radio licenses years ago. We haven't been able to get access on satellite packages. And so we already, even prior to the current pressure on RFERL, we've already been in a situation where RT and Sputnik have much greater ability to access the American audience than RFERL has the ability to access the Russian audience. And so it's already an unbalanced comparison, even if you could compare them given the editorial differences. So I think it's something that is going to be debated by policymakers in Washington, and not just debated when it comes to Russia, but there's also been uh, much discussion about Chinese-funded media in the U.S., and that's an area where the prior administration, the Trump administration, actually put some controls in place, but that has not happened yet on Russian media in the U.S., yeah, just, is there anything else that the U.S. government, that the Congress, that the administration should be thinking of as a way to try to uh, lift or reduce these restrictions and, and understanding that we're talking about a, a trend here, not a one-time thing? I think for, for me, uh, given 
the way that uh, it appears that the Russians are intent on pushing us out of the country, the real question will be, is the U.S. Congress, uh, is the Biden administration, are they committed to continuing to support independent media in Russia? Not just the work of RFERL, which obviously I believe is essential, and we will do that work from outside of the country if we need to. We did that for decades during the Cold War, so we're not going to abandon the Russian audience, uh, but uh, we may need additional resources to do that effectively if we don't have the ability to have as many people on the ground. Um, but also I think uh, the United States government uh, as well as allied governments in Europe should really redouble their support for those smaller indigenous Russian outlets that uh, are not supported by the U.S. government right now and make sure that uh, we continue to try to fight uh, to allow that ecosystem to survive. Because as Andre noted uh, earlier on, we're not back in the Soviet era yet, but I increasingly fear that that's where we may be headed as they continue to tighten the screws on independent media and impose more and more restrictions on their ability to operate. Yeah, I, you know, I, I want to conclude by suggesting the problem is is actually bigger than most people recognize. Jamie, you you mentioned China, where very difficult to report from China, um, which is why we don't know the basic facts about the virus that came from uh, from Wuhan, um, which we're told we should not call the Wuhan virus. Um, if you publicly criticize Iran's rulers for their support of terrorism, their threats to their neighbors, their illicit nuclear weapons program, and argue that civilized nations should curtail economic relations with them, uh, they're likely to threaten you, as they have threatened uh, FDD and some of our, our, our staff by name. And, and meanwhile, the economics of journalism have sharply deteriorated since the days when I was reporting from abroad. So there are just simply not that many people who can make their living as foreign correspondents these days, and particularly from authoritarian countries. Um, if you have any thoughts on that, <laughs> Andre or, or, or Jamie, I'd be, I'd be pleased to hear them. Look, uh, I am listening to and I'm thinking that the ugliest thing which Mr. Putin wants to do with us is to just to, to make journalists to be a part of dirty political game. I am against any kind of censorship. I am with all my heart for free flow of information, for balanced and fact-checking journalism, which, are try which we are trying to do. What Kremlin is trying to do now is to uh, say that it's tit for tat. Uh, you are bad and we are good. So, And uh, don't touch Russia today in the U.S. or uh, RFA rail will be somehow shut shut down in in Russia. It's uh, a nightmare for every journalist. I'm doing journalism for 35 years already. So and I know what journalism is, and I know how to behave in these situations. But for every journalist, the most important thing is to be a site of any kind of politician, whether it's Mr. Biden or Mr. Putin or or Chinese leader or anybody else. We are here to provide fact-based and um, independent journalism. So we know how to do it. And the only way to do it is to make some kind of free atmosphere for everybody in every country. Well, Andre, Jamie, uh, I can't say you left me more optimistic 
than I was when I began, but I didn't really expect you to. Uh, freedom, I think, is clearly not advancing in the world today, and it's unlikely to unless the leaders of what we used to call the free world commit seriously to its defense and stop accommodating uh, authoritarians and other tyrants. Thanks for being with us. It's great to talk to you. I hope to talk to you again. And by the way, thanks to all of you out there in podcast land for joining us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.